All right, so that passage in 1 Corinthians is a good complement to Proverbs chapter 1 because the wisdom of the world is oftentimes at odds with God's wisdom. And so we see there in, in 1 Corinthians 1 uh, what the world called folly and weakness actually was the wisdom and power of God in the cross. Um, and Jesus is the one who is the wisdom of God personified, and he gives us wisdom by the grace of God. So uh, we are going to start into this series on Proverbs. This morning, we're going to look at the first seven verses. So if you're not there already, you want to turn in your copy of God's Word, or if you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find Proverbs on page, page 527. So while you're turning there, just uh, to kind of get the juices flowing and have us start to think um, in preparation for this book, there's a writer named Nicholas Carr who writes on the intersection of technology and culture and commerce. Um, he has a book that was a Pulitzer Prize finalist called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And in that book, he shows how um, these technologies actually change the way that we think and act and live. And so he's kind of focusing, I mean, he recognizes the benefits of the internet, but also focuses on the detrimental influence um, of the internet. And uh, part of the origin of that book came in the summer of 2008, when for The Atlantic he published an article, which I read years ago and remember um, the title, is Google making us stupid. Okay, so his main argument, again, is the detrimental effects and particularly in that article, in relation to diminishing our capacity for concentration and contemplation. Okay? So here's what he wrote. As the media theorist Marshall McLuhan pointed out in the 1960s, media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought, but they also shape the process of thought. And what the internet seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the internet distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Anybody resonate with that? Anybody seen your own maybe attention span, which was already hard enough to manage? Has it gotten shorter, you know, in recent years? So he wrote that back in 2008. And even before him, T.S. Eliot, the poet, asked these questions. Where is the life we have lost in the living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And he died in 1965, <laughs> even though that sounds amazingly relevant, right? He wrote that before the internet, before smartphones. But you can understand that the world in which we live, the information world in which we live, makes it really hard to pursue wisdom. So we're kind of going against the current here, right? So we need to make sure that we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need the book of Proverbs. We even need to slow down like the book of Proverbs forces us to do. I mean, unless you're just reading it to check off the box, 
you need to slow down because the book intends for you to stop and hmm, think about what you read and ponder what it means, not just intellectually, but what it means for real life. All right, so we're going to take somewhere between 12 and 15 weeks to go through the book of Proverbs. We're going to spend um, several weeks in the first nine chapters, which are like the prologue to the book. In a sense, they introduce how do you benefit from Proverbs. You need to be prepared to receive them well. And then chapters 10 through the end um, are filled with Proverbs, most of them like two lines long, right? So we're going to go a little bit slower in, um, well, we're going to do it this way. We're going to spend several weeks in the first nine chapters, and then because Proverbs is just filled with lots of Proverbs, lots of aphorisms, we're going to take it, in a sense, thematically. So we're going to do a week on friendship, a week on the tongue. What, what is the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs relative to money and relationships and so forth, okay? So that's kind of where we're headed with this. And I would encourage you, like I mentioned in the Friday email, if you saw that, this would be a good time to pick up the book of Proverbs and slowly work your way through it. Maybe read a chapter a day so you make it through once a month. And if this series takes us three or four months, you've made it through three or four times. Um, and I think you'll benefit all the more. There's also some other resources we'll, we'll be putting in the, the Friday email so that if you want to go deeper, you can. All right, so three points this morning. Fairly simple outline. The title is the first point. The goals is the second point. And then the beginning is the last point. So first, the title, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So first off, let's just not assume that we know what this means. What is a proverb? So we see this word in verse 1, and we see it again in verse 6. So the Hebrew term in the singular basically means a comparison, okay? Which if you think about the Proverbs, it's actually filled with comparisons. Lots of similes, lots of metaphors. One quick example, Proverbs eleven twenty two, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So that could, you can kind of chuckle at that, but stop. Think about what the world values and think about this proverb. The little thing is the gold. The big thing is the pig. We oftentimes flip that and say, beauty is the most important thing. Discretion would be secondary. Are you tracking with me? Remember, you have to go, hmm, like what's going on here? But that's a comparison, okay? So that's a proverb. But the word slowly began to refer to more than just a comparison. It came to refer to sage sayings of all sorts, okay? So the book of Proverbs is this genre of scripture in the wisdom tradition, and it employs kind of a unique style of teaching using all kinds of wit and simile and metaphor, paradox, common sense, symbolism, etc., to lodge truth into your mind, provoke thought, and impart wisdom for life. So its form, mainly brief, memorable sayings, aims at making the teaching stickier. It's more memorable, and it can stick, and it makes you ponder it. So again, like I said, it forces you to slow down, 
prayerfully think things through so that you can live in accord with reality and in a sense go with the grain. And what I mean is the grain of the way God set up his world by his wisdom. So go with the grain in everyday life in God's world designed by God's wisdom. So we should approach the Proverbs here prepared in a sense to sip and savor them, not gulp them down and quickly move on. Like It should be more like savoring morsels, not scarfing down fast food on the way to the game. That being said, Proverbs are not highbrow, you know, like, well, if you're really wise and in the know, then you'll have, it's not highbrow in that sense. It's actually full of and focused on stuff of real everyday life, like even pragmatic stuff, like how stuff works is the interest of this book. Never at the expense of principles, but it really does get down to the brass tacks of life. So Derek Kidner says it really well, and I would encourage you, if you want a little commentary that's very accessible, it's only this thick, and it's like that big, it's wonderful. Um, I'm gonna quote from him here. So there are details of character small enough to escape the mesh of the law and the broadsides of the prophets, and yet decisive in personal dealings. Like there's lots of stuff of life that isn't addressed in the law and the prophets. And Proverbs moves in this everyday realm, asking what a person is like to live with, how he manages his affairs, his time, and himself. This good lady, for instance, does she talk too much? That cheerful soul, is he bearable in the early morning? Remember that parable? Or parable, you remember that proverb? Um, And this friend who's always dropping in, here's some advice for him and for that rather aimless lad. So again, these are everyday life sort of situations. He goes on to say, like its own figure of wisdom, it calls across to you in the street about some everyday matter or points things out at home. Its function in scripture is to put godliness into working clothes, to name business and society as spheres in which we are to acquit ourselves with credit to our Lord and in which we are to look for his training. Acquit ourselves, like quit with ourselves being you know, the ones we look to and give credit to the Lord in which we're to look for him for training. If we could analyze the influences that build up a godly character maturity, we might well find that the agencies which we call natural, the things that shape us, vastly outweigh those that we call supernatural. The book of Proverbs reassures us that this, if it is true, is no reflection on the efficiency of God's grace. For the hard facts of life, which knock some of the nonsense out of us, are God's facts and his appointed means of character. They are not alternatives to his grace, but means of it. All of these very normal, everyday aspects of life can be schools of wisdom. They're not alternatives to God's grace. They're actually schools of his grace and wisdom. So... I'm sure most of us probably know we read Proverbs different than we read history or Paul's letters in the New Testament. Proverbs are not promises. They're more about probabilities, about how things usually go. Okay, it's about the general rules, not so much about the exceptions, which, like the English language, can be many, right? So the well-worn example We'll make the point, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. It is a proverb. 
So here's the thing. If you don't understand that, things can go really wrong and ugly in the church. So you could have parents who have a child who's wayward and rebellious, and those parents live under this constant guilt and wonderment that the reason why that child is not, you know, walking in the way that he should go is because I must have screwed up. Now, every parent falls short of our, you know, we make mistakes all the time, but the point is, it's not that simple, right? Generally speaking, this is true, but this is a proverb, not a promise. Or you could imagine parents whose kids are doing well judging other parents who have a wayward child saying, well, obviously, it's a result of the training. And you get self-righteousness that is, you know, kicked up. So we need to make sure we understand what a proverb is so that we understand how to read these things. Even though Proverbs deals in generalities in the way things normally go, it's not naive to the fact that they don't always go the way that they should, okay? Or the way that we expect. There's plenty of nuance in the book itself, and this book fits into a broader category of wisdom literature. Job and Ecclesiastes, and even some Psalms, which certainly complement Proverbs to show that the Bible's not simplistic about the messiness of life, right? So Proverbs, along with the other wisdom books, certainly acknowledge and help us with the messiness of life. All right. So what is the book of Proverbs? Well, in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people at many times in various ways, right? One of the groups through which God spoke was the wise. In Jeremiah 18, 18, it says that the law shall not perish from the prophet, nor the counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. So prophets, priests, and sages. So this is a compilation of wisdom from a group of sages in the covenant community. Solomon being the preeminent one. But as we read down, down through the book, there's also a guy named Agur and Lemuel and others, okay? So 1, 1 to 7 is the prologue. 1 to 9 is the introduction, preparing you to benefit from the Proverbs of 10, 1 and following. The Proverbs of Solomon proper actually begin in chapter 10, verse 1 and run through 22, 16. And then there's a couple other sections attributed to the wise, and then more Proverbs of Solomon that were copied by Hezekiah's men. So that was like roughly 250 years after Solomon's time, okay? There's the oracles of Agur and King Lemuel, and then there's this anonymous acrostic of an excellent wife at the end. So one one here is most likely the editor's title for the whole book. Solomon's name is used not because he authored every single proverb in the book, but because he was the principal author, the most prominent author. So one to nine may be his. It may actually not be his, and his proverbs begin in 10.1. Um, either way, it doesn't make a major difference. So in a sense, it's, it's sort of like an anthology of wisdom, but to say it's just an anthology would miss the central purpose or purposes, I should say, of the book. And our next point in verses 2 to 6 shows us the purposes of this book. This is not just an anthology of wisdom, kind of like random 
you know, wise sayings collected together, this book is a training course in wisdom. So let's look at the goals of this book in verses 2 to 6. So this book is a gracious offer of divine wisdom for needy people like you and me. We are all foolish and simple and in need of knowledge and wisdom. So what is this book for? What is its purpose? What are its goals? Look at verses 2 to 6. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So we're not going to go down through every single word of these verses and unpack the nuance of every word, though there could be benefits to that approach. Let me instead just map out the flow of thought here and then draw out a few observations. So first, verses two to three. Wisdom has to do with both perception and with character and action that flows from that character. It's intellectual and it's moral. It's not either or, it's both and, okay? So you see, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, that's, you need to know things. You need to be able to think clearly. You need perception. That's wisdom. But also, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, to know what's right, to do what's right, justice, to do what is just, and equity. That is character and action. So it's, an, it's a both and, not an either or, intellectual and moral. Secondly, verse four, wisdom must be imparted and received. So this is subtle, but look at the difference here. So verses 2 and 3, to know wisdom and instruction, understand words of insight. And then verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Who's going to do that? Who's going to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth? Teachers. So actually... He shifts and says to all who teach. And, and that's not just my role. Mothers and fathers and, you know, Sunday school teachers and anybody that has anyone in their life that is younger and they're trying to help them along or more, less mature and they're trying to help them along. So if we are going to be equipped to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the young, we're going to need to learn how to impart that wisdom, because wisdom needs to be imparted. So there's a shift there that, frankly, before this study, I had never really noticed, because it's easy to just blow by this first section, right? So we should actually seek good teaching grasp of wisdom, so that we can communicate it clearly and helpfully to those who need it. So the book is not only for those who are young and simple, okay, like it says in verse 4, which is Gullible. They're easily led one way or the other. It can be, in a sense, kind of neutral. You're open and receptive, but that means you're easily impressionable in the wrong way as well. So 
to those who are simple, they need discernment. And obviously to the youth, they need wisdom as well. So this book is for the young and it is for the teachers. It's for all of us. It's for the wise even. Look at verse five. This is in a sense almost parenthetical, but you can see how it flows in into, the, into this section. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. So listen, you teachers even, you need this book. Let the wise hear. You haven't arrived. You need to keep learning. You need to keep open. You need to keep hungry. You need to keep receptive. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. And then verse 6 is like a bookend Back to the form of verses 2 and 3 with a goal of understanding repeated from verse 2. So it's kind of like, again, bookends here. Emphasizing understanding. Using the word proverb again like it was in verse 1. So again, bookends. So if we step back, so that's kind of the flow of verses 2 to 6. If we step back, we can see that this book is for everyone from the simplest or most foolish youth to the oldest sage. We can all grow in wisdom, and we all need to grow in wisdom. So there is actually a continuum in Proverbs. Like if you pay attention to these different words like fool, there's actually multiple Hebrew words underneath what we translate as fool. Simple, there's a scoffer, right? So there's a continuum. In the middle is this simple person who is gullible and untrained, and could go either way. And if they don't listen to wisdom, they become more a fool, and they get more hardened to the point that they could become a scoffer. And the book does not say good things about people who get hardened like that and scoff at the wisdom of God. Or you can learn wisdom and begin to grow wise and discerning and understanding, right? So this is the continuum. If two to six doesn't happen, then the simple will go in the direction of hardening and folly and end up a scoffer. So we need wisdom to move in the other direction, to become a wise person. I mean, think about this. There are so many aspects of life where there is not kind of chapter and verse, well, this is, this is the answer for this situation. There's a lot of situations where we need wisdom. Like, how do we go about this? Lord, what do you want me to do? Whether it's romantic relationships, who should I marry? How do I know if this person is the one? How do we do marriage? How do I deal with these differences and challenges in marriage? Friendship, all kinds of issues can arise there. Relationships in general, parenting, business dealings. How about the will of God? How do I know the will of God? How do you make decisions when you have two or more good options? Or neither option seems very good. Or, you know, the million variations on that theme of seeking God's will. We all need to grow in wisdom. And others that we, that cross our path are also going to need wisdom. And so we are going to need wisdom that will then be mediated through us to others down the road. We need to Receive it, live it, so that we can give it. So again, one, two to six is not merely, you know, saying this book is an anthology. No, this is a training course in wisdom. Now, I've used the word wisdom many times already this morning, but we should define our terms, make sure we know what we're talking about. Wisdom in the Bible, 
certainly in the book of Proverbs, is not simply, I said it before, but just to make sure that it's crystal clear, not merely an intellectual category. So what is wisdom? Here's a simple definition. I'm sure there's other ways to say this, and it would be you know, just as accurate, but skill or competence for living life as God intended. So intentionally, you can see how you need knowledge for that, but it's aimed at application, character, and application in real life. So skill or competence for living life as God intended. We can have someone who's incredibly smart in some ways, and yet, ultimately, cosmically speaking, before God, they are a fool. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's plenty of brilliant PhDs out there who, in the most important sense, reject God and even try to fool themselves, pun intended, into believing that there is no God. So wisdom comes through instruction, through the mind, but it's not merely an intellectual category. It's also not merely a category of action. You can have people who keep the rules but do it for all kinds of foolish reasons. Wisdom is this holistic skill and competence for living life as God intended. It comes through the mind, it shapes the heart, and is lived out, hands and feet, which leads to our final point here the beginning, verse 7. The fear of capital letters, Lord, Yahweh, covenant name of God, when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay? So we've got to ask, what is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of Yahweh? I mean, this is the heart of the matter, not just of 1, 1 to 7, but actually the heart of this book. This is like the motto of the book of Proverbs. You all know what a motto is? So it's a sentence, a phrase, a word indicative of the character of a thing or a place or person or group, kind of a short expression of a guiding principle. So, Boy Scouts, what is it? Somebody, be prepared. United States motto. In Latin, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. The Awana motto. Uh oh, because kids matter to God. Okay, um, I'm sure you were singing the song. It's okay. Um, the Olympic Games. I won't try to read this in Latin. Faster, higher, stronger. You see, that's what we're about. Or the U.S. Marines, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. There, I went with some Latin. So this is the motto of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It matters that we understand what the fear of the Lord is if it's at the heart of all wisdom. So what does this phrase mean? It's repeated in Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So in that passage, it is the beginning of wisdom, and it's parallel with knowing the Holy One, with knowing God. So the fear of Yahweh is not this cowering terror 
that he's gonna zap you with a lightning bolt, though obviously if we are rebels against his will and we've not repented and trusted in Jesus and been reconciled to him, then certainly we fear punishment. But this is a book given to the covenant community and the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It is this reverential awe of who God is. This is the beginning of wisdom. It's the first principle. It's the basic building block of wisdom. It's like the alphabet to knowing a language. You don't leave the alphabet behind, but it enables you to understand and become fluent in a language. So this, verse 7, is the threshold. It's the beginning. And it's how we walk the whole path. And it's actually the goal of wisdom. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 4 where it says this, if you seek it, wisdom, insight, understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You'll know God. So it's the beginning, but it's also where you're headed because you want to know God. That's really where wisdom is found, is in God himself. He gives wisdom. He is the source of all wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He gives it to us. We can only receive it. So there's this parallel here, the knowledge of God, knowing God. It's relational. It's intimate. It's covenantal even. So actually, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, maybe that's one of the most famous verses, set of verses in the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Leaning on your own understanding is the opposite of fearing the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him, know him. I want to know what it looks like to live wisely before his face in every nook and cranny of my life. And he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. That's the opposite of fear of the Lord. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So this wisdom is relational, in covenantal relationship with God, the source of all wisdom. And it's the goal of God's gracious covenant that they may know me. That's the promise of the new covenant, isn't it? They shall all know me. So this is what the fear of the Lord is. We can see it by what it's not. We can see it by what is in parallel with it. We can see it with the opposite in verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That would be the opposite of the fear of the Lord. They don't think they need his wisdom. There's pride that keeps them from what they need. There's a heart under there, disposition, that the fool thinks he knows better than God what he or she needs or what's good. And so that fool gets increasingly hardened to the outside influence of God's wisdom. So there was a British novelist and philosopher named Iris Murdoch, and she said this, believers may not often realize it, but even as believers, we are either centered on man or centered on God. There is no alternative. Either God is the center of our universe and we have become rightly adjusted to him, or we have made ourselves the center and are attempting to make all else orbit around us and for us. 
So the fear of Yahweh is a recognition that God is God and I am not. That God is wise and I am not without his wisdom. It is a tender, soft, humble heart before Yahweh. The opposite of what it is to be wise in your own eyes. The opposite of not turning away from evil because you just think you know what's best for you and you're your own standard of right and wrong. So it's not this cowering fear, it's a reverence and respect and awe of the one who made us and knows what is best for us. And we need to grow in this. I need to grow in this. We need to grow in this. It's the beginning and the pathway of growing in wisdom. And there's so much benefit on this path. Listen to just a couple of examples. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 28, 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The, uh, the Knowledge of the Holy. Okay, it's kind of a classic little book on the attributes of God. And in that book, he writes this. I don't think it's up there. I want you to just listen. If you want me to send this to you later, I can. God knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly and with the fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. God is self-existent and self-contained and knows what no creature can ever know himself perfectly. Only the infinite can know the infinite. God knows the flimsiness of every pretext and never accepts the poor excuses given for our sin since he knows perfectly the real reason for it. Like David says in, the Psalm, in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? But he says this, Tozer, to us who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us in the gospel, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to shame us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. 
Listen, folks, brothers and sisters, you're not just folks, your family, brothers and sisters, the rejection of the fear of the Lord was, in a sense, at the heart of the fall of mankind. The lie Satan sold, you remember? To eat the fruit would make one wise. But to choose for yourself what was good, because God's holding out on you, rather than trust the one who made you and made all things good, good, very good, and then self choose self-determination of the good over God. That's, that's like the primal opposite of fear of Yahweh. And what did they learn when they rebelled? They knew that they were naked. They knew shame for the first time. And they knew evil for the first time. That's all they gained. So the only thing that they gained from turning away from fear of Yahweh was loss and death and shame and guilt. So Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. That's a pointer to the gospel, all of God's wisdom found in Jesus, the one who can save us from ourselves and from our folly. So the all-wise God, the all-wise Father in love, sent his son, the embodiment and personification of wisdom. Listen to Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. So listen, we're going to study this, the Proverbs of Solomon but one greater than Solomon is here. And he is the one in whom all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are found. And so he is our teacher by his spirit as we go through this book. Solomon was a genius, but one came infinitely greater and wiser than Solomon. And he didn't come to browbeat us as foolish, stupid wanderers, rebels, he came to show us that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The cross can seem like foolishness and weakness, but it was really the wisdom and power of God. How else can we know God? But through Jesus and through the blood of the cross that reconciles us to God. <clears throat> Jesus lived and died to show us the character of the all-wise God, his Father, his love and grace and forgiveness and wisdom and trustworthy character. So if we recognize our need as foolish sinners and open up to him, fear of Yahweh, he becomes for us the wisdom of God. Jesus himself is the threshold to knowing God in the loving, relational, covenantal, for us, not against us, I will love you always and forever sort of father to beloved child sort of way that the covenant creates. In fact, as we close, even though we're beginning this, you know, embarking on this study through Proverbs, we would do well to realize that the atmosphere of Proverbs is the atmosphere of covenantal adoption. So I hope you don't mind me saying this, probably a little too late. 
Audra, you're already get kind of shrugging. So Audra Bauman just adopted her precious little D. And we are all rejoicing in this, and it's a beautiful thing. She has a lot to teach him. She's going to have to discipline him. She's going to instruct him. She's going to warn him. She's going to encourage him. There's so much to teach him. And sometimes he's going to kick against her and her wisdom. But it's all because she loves him. She's going to say, how many times? My son, my son, my son. Every word, every warning, every promise, every time God puts his arm around us in this book to correct or rebuke or warn or encourage us, we can and should hear and receive this wisdom and counsel in the gracious atmosphere of covenantal adoption as beloved daughters and sons from our loving, all-wise, heavenly Father. Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So just in case nobody's, any of you are not familiar with the book of Proverbs, over and over again, it's my son, my son, my son, okay? In case I needed to connect that dot. Okay, so Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is the openness of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Teach me, help me. I need you. So let's humbly, church, let's humbly and hungrily cry out to our Abba Father to teach us his wisdom and his ways. It is the beginning, it is the path, and it is the goal. He is the goal of a life wisely lived. Let's pray, and we're gonna sing a song to close.